Okay, do you want to take your seats and we'll continue on together this morning? Let me add my welcome to the ones that have already been given. Uh, my name's Philip, I'm one of the leaders here. Great to see you, whether you are new or not. Hope you're having a good time with us. Um, we're going to be looking this morning at the issue of peace. Looking this morning at the issue of peace. So just to get you thinking a little bit, I wonder if I ask you to conjure up in your mind's eye an image of perfect peace. I wonder what image comes to mind. So what for you would be the, the ideal peace scenario? Well, for me, it would, it would be something akin to this little scene behind us here, uh, which is going to appear very shortly. For me, lying on a hammock <laughs> on a desert island would be the most peaceful scene imaginable, which will hopefully crop up in a second. Um, I'll describe it to you whilst just to get your, kind of whet your appetite. So we're talking kind of uh, blue sky, we're talking uh, one, there it is. And that is a scene of peace, is it not? If ever there was one. The hammock's even got some shades. Someone's going to bring me a nice drink whilst I read my book. Sun is shining, beautiful turquoise uh, and lovely blue sky. For me, that would be a scene of consummate peace, especially the bit of lying in the hammock, just kind of relaxing and chilling out in that hammock. For me, would be a very peaceful scene, a very peaceful experience. Well, this week, I came across some other people who thought that lying in a hammock was a pretty peaceful thing to do. Uh, one of our friends will pop up behind me here, and he uh, thought that lying in a hammock could also be a peaceful thing to do. Uh, so he's just here, just chilling out in his hammock, uh, just kind of a pair of shades on, a hoodie, looking pretty chilled out and peaceful, lying in a hammock. But actually, I discovered that him, this, this week, him and his mates had a rather different idea of what it would mean to peacefully lie in a hammock. So if the camera just zooms out a second, you'll see... This was their idea of peacefully lying in a hammock. They're, um, they're hundreds of feet up in the air, as you can see. This is a real event. It's called the International Highline Meeting. It takes place every year, or has done since 2012, in the Italian Alps. There's another picture here. And uh, these guys are having a great time, by the look of it. Um, exactly, guitar, all kinds of things. My question, I've got two questions for them, really, is, firstly, why? Um, <laughs> Why would you do that? Inching out along a high line, setting up a hammock hundreds of feet above the air. Secondly, my question for them is, how are they so peaceful? They're like some guy's playing guitar, somebody else is checking his watch, the other guy in the middle is kind of almost leaning out, you know when you lean out of a hammock? How are they so peaceful in what seems to be a scene of such danger? That would be my question for these guys. Well, just hold that thought for a second as we go into our passage this morning, which is the book of Acts. And if you're new to us, we've been in a series of talks in the book of Acts. Acts is the fifth book in the New Testament. You can find it towards the end of your Bible. We're going to be in chapter 6. And our series of talks has been entitled The Church in Action. And again, if you're new to us or you haven't, you're not familiar with the book of Acts, really the book of Acts tells a story. It tells the story of the first church, the first church in Jerusalem in the first century A.D., and in the first six chapters so far, we've seen that this first church has grown very rapidly and has also faced some pretty significant challenges. That's really been the story so far, growth and challenge. And in the previous passage, that I'll be referring to a bit today actually, the one we looked at two weeks ago, uh, verses 1 to 8, we saw that the church appointed new leaders to deal with the fact they are growing a lot and they've got some big challenges. And if you remember, one of those leaders was called Stephen. And it's Stephen that we're going to be looking at in this passage this morning from verse 8 through to verse 15. And we're going to see that Stephen seems to also experience pretty remarkable peace in the midst of unpromising circumstances. 
So here we go, verse 8 of chapter 6. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia, so those are Jewish synagogues, but Greek-speaking Jewish synagogues, they rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against his holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. So my question for Stephen at the end of this passage is, how is he so peaceful? How, why is he able to experience such peace? Because if you look at the context of what's happening, you can see it's somewhat surprising that this is his peaceful reaction. So Stephen's a Christian, as you've probably already worked out, but by ethnicity, he's Jewish. And culturally, by his language and culture, he was Greek in that sense. And these are other Greek-speaking Jews with, with whom he's with. They're his own people. And they're rejecting him utterly. That would sting, I imagine. Secondly, He's being wrongly accused. People are inventing lies about him. If you've ever experienced that, you know that would hurt. Thirdly, Stephen knows that the senior leaders of the church in Jerusalem, they've also been arrested. You can read about it in chapter 4. They've already been arrested. And they were told not to speak about Jesus. And they were very badly beaten to warn them not to do so. It's pretty scary, I imagine. And fourthly, Stephen's just been accused of blasphemy. So that's decrying God. And he knows full well that under Jewish law and custom, the penalty for that is potentially death. With all of that in mind, verse 15 says, and Stephen's face was like the face of an angel. I don't know what that means to you as you dwell on that text. But it means that his face is shining. His face is shining with authority, with confidence, with calm, which for me is the definition of peace in that sense. If you're experiencing such confidence, such assurance, such calm, that is surely, if it's anything, it's to be at peace. But how? how what, in the midst of all of this, how is he to, uh, be able to, to do this? Tom Wright kind of unpacks this uh, concept a bit more. He's a, Tom Wright's a, a well-known Bible scholar in this country and a, and a church leader. And he helps us understand what's happening with this phrase, his face was shining like the face of an angel. Wright says this, We're meant to understand that there was a kind of illuminating, there was a kind of a light, sorry, illuminating Stephen from the inside. A kind of serenity, humble and unostentatious, but confident and assured. My question is, how is that possible? How does he know such peace? How is in the midst of all of this, the threats to his, to his life and his safety and everything else, how is he able to illuminate a kind of serenity, 
humble and unostentatious, confident and assured. I don't know about you, but I want to know that. I want to know that kind of peace, to be serene, confident, calm, even or especially in the midst of trouble. Don't you want to know that? That's true peace, I think. Stephen seems to have found true peace. Now, you might be in the midst of storms this morning. You might be facing troubles, significant things in your life at the moment. And frankly, peace might seem a long way off. And perhaps even now you're asking, how do I find peace? Or maybe you're experiencing, actually, life being a bit of a peaceful calm at the moment. Life's, life's pretty good. My question for you is, if trouble comes, and Jesus bluntly promised all Christians that it would, so when trouble comes, will your peace stand? Will your source of peace stand? So as we look at true peace, we're going to look at three things. Number one, our love for peace. Number two, where we look for peace. And number three, how to live a life of true peace. Our love for peace, where we look for peace, and how to live a life of true peace. So number one, our love for peace. Um, I was able to babysit recently for kind of child mine recently for my nephews. So my brother lives out in Brussels. Uh, he's got three little boys at the time of this, uh, this, this day, this event. Uh, they were about two, five, and seven, I think. So if you're a parent, you can imagine this is a fairly action-packed day with three little boys of two, five, and seven. Um, and in the Elwood household, we get up at six in the morning for football practice. That's just, that's just what we do when you're two years old in the Elwood family. So that's how the day started with a pretty early morning. And then we went off to the zoo in Brussels, which was a great time, but again, it was fairly frenetic. We had a slightly unfortunate incident with an aggressive giraffe, but that's another uh, preaching illustration another time. Um, and a, a fairly frenetic journey home in traffic. We then got home. I was kind of doing the tea for all of them. That definitely food was flying around. It was, frankly, chaos by that half six, bath time, shower time, bedtime. If you're a parent, you know all of this stuff. I'm sure it's more serene in your household than it was in this particular occasion for me. But by about half seven... I was kind of ready for them to go to bed. I was kind of ready for some peace in my day. And I rummaged through my brother and his wife's kind of collection of children's books, thinking, what is the book that I can find that's going to try and bring some peace to this situation? And I found this uh, classic, some of you might know. Some of you parents thinking, oh yes, this old faithful has seen my children off many a time. Uh, we've, we've lost the red in our, in our projector, which is why these bears have turned slightly green. Not, they're, not, uh, they're not seasick, they're just having a, a, little, a little chill out. So I found the piece at this, this book called The Peace at, Peace at Last, which tells the story really of Daddy Bear and how he eventually manages to find some sleep during the night. And I kind of read it with a suitable degree of uh, ever-decreasing or ever-increasing calm and peace. And you get to the end, and the story is very clever, because by the end, Daddy Bear goes to sleep, and the whole house goes to sleep, and it's all intended to bring calm and peace and assurance to the house. And I'm with please, can you go to sleep? And eventually they did, and we had some peace that evening. And I guess if you're a parent, maybe when we think about this issue of how much we love peace or desire peace, you might think, yep, I would love peace with my kids, or I would love peace from my kids. Maybe that's the peace that you would currently love. Perhaps you would love peace with your neighbors. Maybe you know what it is to have neighbors who are living different hours to you and are playing musical night. Or maybe you're the kind of people who people come to and they complain about you. But either way, you would love peace with your neighbors. Perhaps it's peace with colleagues. That would be the thing that you would currently love. Oh, to have peace in the office. Or maybe peace in your marriage is the thing that you would most currently love. But either way, or any way, I think at some level, every human heart desires peace with those around us. 
And it might be peace with those immediately around us, or it might be peace perhaps more globally that we also desire deep in the human heart. You'd be looking perhaps at the news this week, just fresh traumas and horrors in the Middle East. And uh, I used to be a history teacher, and we spent some time looking at one particular conflict in the Middle East, which is the Arab-Israeli conflict or the Israeli-Palestine conflict. Again, uh, that green flag is obviously slightly incorrect. Um, but you can look at that, um, that conflict, and you can look back at the history of it up until today and think, man, this is just an impossible situation. Just for decades and decades, the conflict in that area seems impossible to solve. The death toll continues to mount. The, the suffering continues to increase. Both sides seem increasingly resolute and intractable in their position. And if anything like me, you can watch a situation like that and just think, peace, please. There's a little image that will pop up here, which kind of sums up perhaps the cry of our heart when we see conflicts like this. And we just think, peace, please. <laughs> peace to that situation? There's something in the human heart that desires peace with those around us immediately and also, I think, peace more globally. But perhaps most of all, what the human heart desires is actually even more than peace with others, immediately or globally, but actually it's peace with self. It's peace with ourself that I would suggest the human heart desires most. When I was at school, I'm reliably informed that one of my teachers infamously commented, Philip exudes a permanent air of frustration. It was written on my school report, I'm told. Uh, and in truth, I think peace is always something personally that I found quite hard to come by. Um, I was very fortunate to be brought up in a, in a loving and secure home, but I kind of always wrestled with the feeling that nothing was really good enough. Uh, and if you ask Keith, who's leading worship for us this morning, he could tell you many a tale where that was exhibited in our school life together. I kind of wrestled with that. Nothing was good enough. No one was good enough. And most importantly, or most significantly, most pertinently, I wasn't good enough. Peace with self was something I found very difficult to come by. And as a Christian, that, that restlessness and frustration has wonderfully begun to be replaced by increasing peace. But if I'm honest, I would suggest that it would be a lifelong process. And the guy behind me is a bit of a hero of mine. I think it's been at least three weeks since Johnny Wilkinson has appeared in a uh, preaching illustration, so I thought it was time for him to appear again. Uh, Johnny Wilkinson, if you don't know, is one of the great rugby players of the world, probably one of the best in the last 15 years or so. And uh, I recently came across uh, a book that he wrote, kind of an autobiography, effectively. And I came across some very, very surprising text in that book that he wrote about himself. So Wilkinson was really one of the, the leading world players in the, in the last 15 years or so. And back in 2002, or he wrote these words reflecting on where he was in 2002. Basically, he'd been playing for kind of five years non-stop, summer and winter. And the England team had quite reasonably said, you need a break from the summer tour, stay at home, and we'll get on without you. And because of that situation, this is what Johnny Wilkinson wrote. Suddenly, I find myself in virgin territory. The England team are out there working hard, and I'm at home and not doing anything. And without rugby, without pushing myself as far as I can go, without working on my path towards being the best, who am I? My entire value system has been created around being the best player in the world and doing whatever is required to get there. But away from rugby now, where does that leave me? This starts as a thought, a single negative notion in my head. Yet the more I try to figure it out, the further away I am from an answer. I start sleeping terribly, three or four hours a night. My obsessive side has truly kicked in. I get back from training one day with this darkness inhabiting my brain. 
I go up to the hotel. Usually, I use their pool to relax. This time, I make sure that no one else is around, lower myself into the water until I'm completely submerged, and then let out a scream of total frustration. I come up for air and then submerge myself again and scream again. No words, just pure desperation. I carry on screaming as long and as loud as I can, and I don't stop until I'm hoarse. I can't find any other way of dealing with this non-stop barrage of thought and negativity. I cannot live with myself. I just think that's remarkable stuff to come from a guy like this. So whether you know Wilkinson or not, this, he wrote this when he was seemingly at the top of the world, one of the best players in the world, and not just one of the best players in the world, one of the most admired people. So because of his kind of great charm and good manners and sportsmanship and intelligence and good looks, he's admired across the world in other spheres outside of sports. And all he's doing is taking a well-earned break, having scaled the heights of his sport. And he can't live with himself because his source of peace has gone. And it seems to me that many people seem to be at peace with the world, at peace with others, but deep down it's peace with self that can be very elusive. And this desire for peace is no surprise when you read the Bible, is it? You go to the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Go to the first two chapters of the first book of the Bible. And the scene is the Garden of Eden, that creation scene. And what you see in the Garden of Eden in the first two chapters of Genesis, if anything, you see a scene of consummate peace. If the Garden of Eden is anything, it is a scene of total peace. A picture of humanity at peace. Adam and Eve are at peace. They're at peace with the world around them. They're at peace with each other in their marriage. They're at peace with their self. Just as an aside, how, how at peace do you have to be to walk around naked? I'm just saying, they're walking around naked. They must be fairly at peace. But <laughs> what I want to know is how is all of this possible? Not the naked rambling bit, but how is this, how is this peace so possible for them? It's because they're also at peace with God. That's the main ingredient in the Garden of Eden, is that they are at peace with God. And then if you know the story, Adam and Eve decide to seek peace elsewhere, effectively. Outside of the plans and purposes of God, they try and seek their peace elsewhere. It's called sin. And that results in a fracturing, a dislocation in their relationship, in their peace with God. And you see, just as peace with self, peace with others, peace with the world around us comes from, ultimately, peace with God, so a fracturing in peace with God results in a fracturing, a dislocation with, between us, peace with the world, peace with others, and peace with self. And the story of the rest of the Bible is this. It's the story of a loving God seeking to restore peace between himself and humanity. Despite humanity's continual decision to reject him and look for its peace elsewhere. Where are you seeking peace? Or question, different question, different way of putting it. What one thing would you need to change to achieve peace? Perfect partner? Promotion? That promotion? That work? A slightly bigger house in a slightly better area? That illness healed? You see, we can look for peace in all kinds of places. That's my second point this morning. Where we look for peace. So number one, our love for peace. Number two, where we look for peace. We will go to great lengths 
as human beings to look for peace. If you've been part of King's Church for a while, you know that we have a, a men's weekend away each year, and we had one this year. We were down towards uh, Southampton, and we stayed in kind of a, like an outdoor pursuits type place. So you can imagine it was quite, the, the uh, accommodation was quite spartan. And um, I guess because I'm not a parent yet, I've become accustomed to getting a pretty good night's sleep. And I quite enjoy getting a pretty good night's sleep and hold it in high value, the peace that it brings me. And uh, a couple of things struck me as I settled my bags in my room. Firstly, these, this is a room of four bunk beds. There's going to be me and three other men in this room. And I knew that four men snoring and leaving the room at certain times was not going to be conducive for me to get a good night's sleep. It was not going to help my peace. Secondly, I had heard that there were some rooms on the corridor that were currently unoccupied and uninhabited. So, like the intrepid explorer that I am, I went in search of said unoccupied room, and I found an empty room with four empty beds in it. Wonderful. Peace at last, you'd have thought. And I settled in there. And then I thought, well, it's probably likely that somebody else might think of the same thing. And in fact, there are men in this very room who did think of the same thing. I thought, I can't really have my peace interrupted. So, frankly, I'm ashamed to say, I effectively barricaded myself in uh, with some chairs and some bags so that nobody else could get into my room. I feel that public confession has finally, finally happened. People will do all kinds of things to look for peace. People will do all kinds of things to look for peace. And if you go back into our text in Acts, if you look at Stephen, before this crisis hit Stephen, he has all kinds of options that he could find peace in. He has an array of places that he could look to find peace. So just think about Stephen for the moment as being a Christian in church. Think of it in that context. He has some options to find peace in that context, hasn't he? He's been recently recognized by the church leaders as being full of potential, and he's been given significant responsibility to care for the most vulnerable in the church. Also, God seems to be using him powerfully to do miracles, to speak about Jesus. God is blessing everything that he's turning his hand to. So in simple terms, his church life is going really well. And that may be the case for you. Perhaps you've been asked to lead something recently and it's beginning to, to flourish and to bear fruit. Maybe you lead a life group and that is flourishing and going well. Perhaps like Stephen, that when you pray for people or when you speak to others about Jesus, God seems to really be blessing it and using it and wonderful things are happening question for you is, is that where you look for peace? Or you could take it outside the church for a moment. So rather than seeing Stephen as being a Christian in the church, just see him as a Christian who is going about his daily life. And for him, the church is the main place where that happens. But he's a Christian guy going about his daily life. You could say it's almost his workplace in that sense. So with that context in mind, Stephen's also got places that he could search for peace. He, if you like, he's been asked to take on extra responsibility by the leaders of his organization. In verse 3, in the previous passage, we're told that he was a man of good reputation, well thought of, highly regarded. And also, as far as we know, at least, his life so far has been relatively trouble-free. At least as far as we know, there's been no indication that, at least up until now, life seems to have been fine for him, comfortable even, perhaps, but for Stephen, whether it's the church context or the, 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 the wider world context, none of these factors are his source for peace. They can't be. How do we know? Because they all disappear and peace remains. They all disappear. Think about it. The non-Christians in his life, 
So for us, that could be family, friends, colleagues, teammates, neighbors. They all reject him. Reputation is increasingly in tatters. Then they invent serious allegations against him that could, and spoiler alert for you here in the story, do result in a death sentence. So his personal safety and comfort is rapidly disappearing. And given that he signed up, given that originally what he signed up for in church was to basically serve the poor at the food bank, that's now turned into him being in court on trial. So what's happening to God blessing his ministry? And yet, verse 15, his face was like the face of an angel. My, um, my fiance Caroline is training to be a clinical psychologist and no doubt I provide her with plenty of material and will continue to do so. Um, but she tells me that uh, there's a condition that psychologists talk about which is called avoidance, which is a kind of simple concept where when somebody is experiencing some degree of difficulty or even trauma, they will kind of withdraw from that situation emotionally and mentally in order not to be able not to engage with it. It's called avoidance. And some might argue that's what Stephen's doing perhaps. People might say, well, he's kind of in a trance, isn't he? He's just kind of mentally, emotionally withdrawn. He's in some kind of trance. He's not really cognizant of what's going on. That's how he's coping. That's how he's getting his peace. But I think if you read the text in the Bible, that's not what's happening at all. Because if you look at verse 10, we know that Stephen, when he was challenged, we know that he engaged with those that challenged him so winsomely, persuasively, intelligently, logically, and coherently that they could not, they had no answers. They couldn't compete. They had to turn to other tactics, i.e. to make up lies against him. Such was the manner in which he logically and coherently and winsomely engaged with them. And then in the next scene, i.e. chapter 7, which we'll look at in a couple of weeks, he spends 50 verses doing the same kind of thing, engaging with the opposition, talking to them logically, arguing and persuading them as to the, the, the rightness of his position. This is not a man who is just mentally and emotionally withdrawn and is sitting there in a trance-like state. He is engaging right in the midst of opposition and hardship and experiencing incredible peace in the process. Stephen's extraordinary peace does not come from his reputation because that's gone. It doesn't come from the respect and acknowledgement of others because that's going it doesn't even come from the personal comfort and safety that he might have experienced, because that's under threat. And it doesn't even come from God's blessing on his ministry in the church, because that is up in the air. To my question again, where do you obtain your peace from? And do you know that it won't fail you when trouble comes? When everything is pulled from under you, like Stephen's experiencing, or even one thing is pulled from under you, will you still know true peace? And that's my third point this morning. So we said that we love peace, we said that we look for peace, and that we said that we can live, a, now we can live, how do we live a life of true peace? How do we live a life of true peace? Some of you will know that DIY is not my favorite thing. 
Uh, I definitely have an avoidance issue with uh, DIY. I think it's fair to say I will just stay clear of it. Uh, I know that some of you relish it and some of you are really good at it, but I neither relish it nor excel at it. Uh, and I will generally try and avoid it. But a couple of years ago, I moved into a new flat, so I had to therefore make the obligatory trip to Ikea and purchase the obligatory uh, flat Patchester drawers and spend the obligatory three and a half days trying to construct the thing in question. And I did manage to construct it relatively well, other than that the middle... This is really, I'm feeling annoying here. The middle drawer of the three doesn't quite sit on the, on the runners. So whenever you, whenever you, some of you are wincing, I can see now you understand. Whenever you pull it out, it usually falls off as runners. It's so annoying. It basically happens to me every week for the last two years. Like you ease this thing out, and usually you can get it right, but occasionally it'll fall on your foot. And it happened to me this week. I was like, I'm so far from experiencing true peace at this moment. Peace for me seems a long way off. It does often seem a long way off. But as I've been looking at this text and looking at Stephen's piece, it's been really encouraging me because he's pointing me to Jesus. He really is pointing me to Jesus. You see, you can look at Stephen now and you can be inspired. You could aim for that. Or you can look at Stephen, see Jesus and be equipped for that. Because it's not just that Stephen believed in Jesus though he did. It's not just that he preached Jesus, though he clearly did. It's not just that he served Jesus, though he did. The reason why Stephen's face shines is because this is a man marked out for being with Jesus. Not in the sense that he walked the earth with Jesus, because he didn't, but in the sense that he has the spirit of Jesus with him and in him. And again, we know that from the text, the previous passage, Verse 3 and verse 5 both tell us that he was, quote, full of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus. And later on in the Bible, in the book of Galatians, the New Testament, we're told that when you have the Spirit of Jesus in you, it produces all kinds of the character traits of Jesus out of you. And this is happening, isn't it? It's happening for Stephen. Verse 3 and verse 10 says that he was full of wisdom. Verse 8, that he was full of grace. Verse 5, that he was full of faith. Verse 8, that he was full of power. And of course, we said that he's full of peace. And really, that makes sense to us. It makes even more sense to us when we read the Old Testament. For example, the book of Isaiah, which is a book written about 700 years before we see what's happening in Acts. And in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah continually hints at and predicts 700 years beforehand the day when Jesus will arrive and what he will accomplish. But in one particular passage, Isaiah points very pertinently to Jesus. Chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, Isaiah says this, His name shall be called Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. The story of humanity, I would argue, is a story of peace of peace being sought. And the story of the Bible tells that story. It tells us that we were made for peace with each other, with self, with the world around us, and all of that flows from having peace with God. But the Bible also tells us that mankind chose, and frankly has chosen ever since, to look for its peace elsewhere. And in so doing, has fractured peace with God. But God has always planned to restore peace between us and him. 
The Old Testament, like places like Isaiah, constantly hint at and predict the day when God would send his own son, the Prince of Peace, to give us the peace with God the Father that he has known for eternity. And so you can look at Stephen and think, I need to emulate him. I want to be like that. It's not a bad thing to think. But instead, I would say even more than that, look at Stephen and see Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Look at the parallels between Stephen and the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace who also performed amazing miracles. He who also was so full of the Spirit of God, faith, grace, power. He who also taught with remarkable wisdom. He who was also falsely accused. He who also experienced rigged trials and a brutal death. The Prince of Peace went to the the worst of chaos and tumult and trouble and pain and rose from death to life to award us what he'd always experienced. Peace with God, now and forever. It's a story of the Bible. Jesus doesn't call you to try hard and emulate Stephen. He calls you to believe in him to receive him, to know him, and to follow him. And to to follow Jesus is to relinquish your control upon your sources of peace and put him in control. To make the prince of peace your prince, your lord. That's That's why Stephen's face shines with peace in the midst of unimaginable hardship and trial because he's been with Jesus he's full of the spirit of Jesus and he's made Jesus the source of his peace source of his peace Jesus is in control Jesus is the focal point and the source of his peace and when everything else is pulled from under him he still has true peace his face shines like the face of an angel we're going to worship Again in a second, but before we do so, let me just try and help you to respond to what I think God has been saying. You might not be a Christian this morning. I hope you know how welcome you are. You might have lots of questions, and frankly, I hope that you do, and I hope that you ask them. You can speak to me or to to Jason, who's uh, hosting this morning, or the person that you came with. Ask those questions. Or you might say, do you know what? I'm actually ready to come and I want to know true peace with the Prince of Peace. I want him to be in control. We'd love to help you do that. There'll be a prayer team who can talk and pray with you towards the end. Or maybe you are a Christian and you you believe in and you love Jesus. But if you're honest, there's one thing, or maybe more than one thing, that you rely upon for your peace. And if you were to lose control of that one thing or those things, your peace will go with it. So I'd invite you to come to Jesus now, to come to him in repentance, to to center your life on him again. It's hard to relinquish control, but that is the invitation of the gospel to let Jesus be in control, to let him be the prince, the Lord. Or maybe you just say, I'm in a storm. (laughs) Maybe I'm not in Stephen's storm, but man, it feels like I am. I just want to know true peace. The invitation of Jesus is not to try hard and emulate Stephen. It's to come to him, to experience the peace, the true peace that he fought so hard for and died for and purchased to award to you. I wonder if I can invite Keith and the band to come and join me again. And we've got some time to worship. 
Jason will help us to respond as we, as we do that. But can I invite us to stand? And I'll pray for us. And then we will enjoy worshipping the, the Prince of Peace. And I'll be praying that God helps you to respond in whatever way he is doing. Lord Jesus, we, we stand here and want to worship you afresh this morning. We thank you so much that you made our hearts to, to find peace. That wasn't an accident. You made us like that. You made us to be human beings who desire peace with each other and with ourselves. And you also made us to know peace with you, God, the Godhead, the God of eternity. And we fractured that, and yet you have gone to such extraordinary lengths through the Prince of Peace to bring us back into what we were made for, to know real peace with you. God, I pray for any right now who would think, I, I don't know that true peace. I pray, Jesus, by the power of your Spirit, the same Spirit that filled Stephen so wonderfully and powerfully, come and meet those people right now. I pray we would be a church that is full of true peace, the peace of the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ himself, that we would radiate, like Stephen, something very different, very unique, very attractive, because your amazing peace is in us. Amen.